Thank you all. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. The title of my message today is The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. The problem is enmity, not ethnicity. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible translation. For he himself, that is Christ, he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, that is in Christ, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it, that is by the cross, having put to death the Enmity. Enmity. It is a word that has all but disappeared from our contemporary lexicon. Think about it. I would like a show of hands, please, and be honest. When was the last time you used the word enmity in a conversation or heard someone else use the word? Exactly. Exactly. But despite its rare usage, enmity is a word that carries significant weight and importance, particularly when considered within the context of Scripture. And speaking of context, I want to say at the outset of my talk that I am rather dogmatic that when Christians engage in apologetics, it is critical that we begin our defense of the gospel by biblically defining the terms we use. Words have meaning. And it is the meaning of words, which, for better or worse, that establish the context for our apologetics. By not defining our terms biblically, we risk engaging the world using the world's terms on the world's turf. Consequently, we end up ceding the moral, ethical, and theological high ground to an unbelieving culture and thereby risk losing the argument altogether. To not stand on a solid biblical foundation in terms of defining our terms opens the door to pluralism, the idea that all beliefs are equally valid. As theologian D.A. Carson explains in his book, The Gagging of God, quote, an entire vision of reality is at stake. One thing is very clear. It is quite impossible to be a Christian in any responsible use of that term and be a pluralist. The pluralist will explain the Christian and will doubtless conclude that the Christian is too tightly bound by tradition, naive in the area of epistemology, intolerant of other views, and so forth. Pluralists are inconsistent in that they want to be understood univocally while insisting that ancient authors, let alone God himself, cannot be. They may have many religious experiences, but none of them deals with the heart of the human problem, the sin that is so deeply a part of our nature. In short, we must deal with massively clashing 
worldviews. And part of our responsibility is to explain competing worldviews from our vantage point. We cannot possibly engage at that level unless we ourselves have thoroughly grasped the biblical storyline and its entailed theology, unquote. As Christians and as apologists, it is vital that we not embrace the language of the culture as we endeavor to engage the culture. I want to repeat that. As Christians and as apologists, and every Christian is an apologist, it is vital that we not embrace the language of the culture as we endeavor to engage the culture. Christians are to love others, yes, but not at the expense of truth. We dilute the gospel when we exchange biblical terms for those used by the world. As Pastor John MacArthur has said, the health of the church and the impact of the church is always based on the church's ability to keep objective truth clear. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And the health of the church is always based on her ability to keep objective truth, biblical revelation, clear. Never to blur the line between truth and error. When theology is watered down, that line is rubbed out. As calls for racial reconciliation and social justice increased, both in fervency and in frequency, Christians must be willing to call a thing what the word of God calls it. What the culture calls racism, the Bible calls simply hate. That's 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11, and 1 John 3, 15. Ethnic prejudice towards another image bearer of God is sin, period. Hatred of any kind is a matter of the heart, which is why enmity, not ethnicity, is the root cause of much of the animus and discord that we're seeing in society today. Now, in its singular form, because the plural form of the word occurs in Galatians 5.20, the word enmity appears only eight times across Scripture's 66 books. Those eight instances are found in Genesis 3.15, Numbers chapter 35, verses 21 and 22, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 42, Ezekiel 25, verse 15, and in chapter 35, verse 5, and lastly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15, and 16. And in each of those eight occurrences, the word enmity denotes a very intense, fierce, harsh, and deep-seated animosity and hostility between parties that are in opposition to one another. In Ephesians 2.15, the word enmity is the Greek noun ekthra, that's E-C-H-T-H-R-A, Ekthra is the feminine form of the adjective ekthros, that's E-C-H-T-H-R-O-S, which means to hate or to be hostile to. It is the word ekthros that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, For if while we were enemies, that's ekthros, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
For followers of Jesus Christ, the starting point of any discussion about reconciliation of any kind must be that each of us is an enemy of God from the very moment we are conceived in the womb. Consequently, we are congenital enemies of one another. In Genesis 8:21, God says, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. In Job chapter 15, verse 16, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, said to him that humanity is, quote, detestable and corrupt, unquote, and that mankind, quote, drinks iniquity like water, unquote. King David confesses in Psalm 51, 5, that, quote, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, unquote. Enmity is why there can be no horizontal reconciliation. That's man to man. Apart from vertical reconciliation, man to God. And in either case, it is Jesus Christ through the proclamation of his gospel that makes that reconciliation possible. As the 18th century Welsh minister and Bible commentator Matthew Henry said, quote, if God justified and reconciled us when we were enemies, as Ekthros again, much more will he then save us when we are justified and reconciled. The one who has done the greater, which is to change us from enemies to friends, will certainly do the less, which is to treat us in a kind of friendly way when we are friends. The dying Jesus laid the foundation by making atonement for sin and bringing the enmity to an end, unquote. Conversely, pastor and author John Piper writes this, quote, the gospel of Christ conquers our hearts and brings us to repentance and faith in Christ. Christ enters our lives and dwells within us. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Therefore, into the racial situation, the gospel brings the only power that can set people free from the bondage of the devil. The devil gives way to no other power than the power of Christ. And the power of Christ moves in the world through those who have believed the gospel and are indwelt by the spirit of Christ, unquote. So as believers, our understanding of the doctrine of enmity, though, our understanding of the doctrine of enmity is so languid that it is virtually absent from our preaching and apologetics. But there was one individual on whom the doctrine of enmity was not lost. His name was Jupiter Hammon. Jupiter Hammon was born a slave in October 1711. He died a slave somewhere around the year 1806. Literally every breath, every heartbeat, and every blink of the eyes that Jupiter Hammond experienced over the course of his earthly life was as a slave. On September 24, 1786, Jupiter Hammond gave a speech in New York City at the inaugural meeting of an organization called the African Society. His speech was titled, An Address to the Negroes of the State of New York. And that speech is also known as the Hammond Address. In that address, Jupiter Hammond said this, quote, Now you may think that you are not enemies to God and that you do not hate him. 
But if your heart has not been changed and you have not become true Christians, you certainly are enemies of God and have been opposed to him ever since the day you were born, unquote. Now, let me let me remind you that Jupiter Hammond took every breath, literally every breath of his nearly 100 years of life in this sinful world as someone else's property. And yet the biblical doctrine of enmity is something Hammond clearly understood. Now, contrary to what was the common stereotype regarding slaves, Hammond was not an unintelligent or uneducated man. His father, Obadiah, himself a slave, as was Jupiter's mother, her name was Rose, they were both literate. Though a slave, Hammond's owners, Henry and Rebecca Lloyd, both of whom were Anglicans, allowed Hammond to receive a somewhat rudimentary education through the Anglican Church's Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts system. Hammond later went on to become the first published black poet in the history of the United States. Jupiter Hammond believed in the sovereignty of God. In fact, so convinced was he that God was in absolute control of everything that occurred in the world that he saw even his own enslavement as God's eschatological providence in his life. As Hammond explained in the aforementioned address to the Negroes of New York, quote, we live so little time in this world that it is no matter how wretched and how miserable, how miserable we are if it prepares us for heaven. What is 40, 50, or 60 years when compared with eternity, unquote. Though in bondage physically, Jupiter Hammond was a free man spiritually, perhaps freer even than some of you who are within the sound of my voice today. Hammond understood that emancipation from his slavery to sin was of far greater concern and significance than being liberated from his physical shackles. Hammond's understanding of the doctrine of enmity, I believe, argues well that he was more orthodox in his systematic theology than many formerly trained professional theologians today who have earned seminary degrees. But whatever the depth of his theological acumen might have been, I'm convinced that Jupiter Hammond would be criticized, if not altogether ostracized by many evangelical social justicians today, for holding to what they would undoubtedly view as a hermeneutic of passivity, for having the temerity to believe that his subjugation to his white slave masters had been providentially ordained by God before the foundation of the world. I have absolutely no doubt that Jupiter Hammond would be labeled a, quote, race traitor, a coon, an Uncle Tom, a house nigger, or of not being, quote, enlightened or, quote, woke enough to the historical struggle for justice in America by those who were of a similar shade of melanin as he. In other words, Hammond would be de denigrated, especially by many black social justicians, for not buying to the gospel of grievance. Speaking of which, the noted abolitionist and educator Booker T. Washington, who himself was a slave, wrote about such people in his book, My Larger Education, where he said this, quote, 
A story told me by a colored man in South Carolina will illustrate how people sometimes get into situations where they do not like to part with their grievances. In a certain community, there was a colored doctor of the old school who knew little about modern ideas of medicine, but who in some way had gained the confidence of the people and had made considerable money by his own peculiar methods of treatment. In this community, there was an old lady who happened to be pretty well provided with this world's goods and who thought that she had cancer. For 20 years, she had enjoyed the luxury of having this old doctor treat her for that cancer. As the old doctor became, thanks to the cancer and to other practice, pretty well to do, he decided to send one of his boys to a medical college. After graduating from the medical school, the young man returned home and his father took a vacation. During this time, the old lady who was afflicted with the, quote, cancer, unquote, called in the young man who treated her. Within a few weeks, the cancer, or what was supposed to be the cancer, disappeared, and the old lady declared herself well. When the father of the boy returned and found the patient on her feet and perfectly well, he was outraged. He called the young man before him and said, my son, I find that you have cured that cancer case of mine. Now, son, let me tell you something. I educated you on that cancer. I put you through high school, through college, and finally through the medical school on that cancer. And now you, with your new ideas of practicing medicine, have come here and cured that cancer. Let me tell you, son, you have started off all wrong. How do you expect to make a living practicing medicine in that way? Unquote. Washington went on to say, talking about people who today we would say are advocates of the gospel of grievance. Quote, I am afraid that there is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well, because as long as the disease holds out, they have not only an easy means of making a living, but also an easy medium through which to make themselves prominent before the public. If the patient gets well, an entire industry of victimhood will get cancer and die. This would be the best thing for the black community. Until blacks throw off the shroud of victimhood, they will be at the mercy of the doctors who treat a cancer that does not exist, but that they're paying for, unquote. Now, when we revisit the theology of Jupiter Hammond, does it not stand to reason that a God who is sovereign over his creation would also be in control of what occurs in it? Consider that question in light of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, which reads, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider this, the Lord has made the one as well as the other. And these words from David in Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. There's also Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and what Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery in Egypt. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, my point in citing those verses is that the sovereignty of God is found throughout Scripture. 
That is why I believe Jupiter Hammond would wholeheartedly concur with John Piper, who said this, quote, we can be sure that whatever God is accomplishing as he actively carries along all things, it is just and right. As the scriptures emphatically declare, God is indeed the rock on which we, even in life's most evil moments, can rest. The one whose works are perfect and of and all of what and all of whose ways are just in ordaining. Listen to this in ordaining the evil works of others. He himself does no wrong. Upright and just is he, unquote. Jupiter Hammond understood what many Christians today do not. That enmity, not ethnicity, is what alienates us from God and from one another. If Hammond were alive today, I'm convinced he would argue that the kind of animus that many people today refer to as racism has absolutely nothing to do with skin color, but is merely a byproduct of what actually is the real cause of the problem, namely sin. Now, allow me to illustrate. In January of 2019, I relocated from Georgia. I'm originally from Atlanta. As Michael mentioned, I relocated from Georgia to California to join the staff at Grace to You, uh, the Bible teaching ministry of uh, John MacArthur. Prior to that, I spent five years as a business analyst supervisor at the Georgia Department of Driver Services, the DDS, what you refer to as the DMV. In that role, I was responsible for leading process improvement projects for the organization. The objective of those projects was to reduce costs while improving and measuring operational efficiencies. A first step in launching any process improvement project is performing what is referred to as a root cause analysis. The primary objective of any root cause analysis is to determine, you guessed it, what is the root cause? Emphasis on root. What is the root cause of a problem that has occurred? Now, as followers of Christ, our approach to the issue of ethnic prejudice or racism is not unlike performing a root cause analysis, but in a spiritual sense, which occurs at the level of the individual heart. Listen, nothing that is systemic starts out that way, but originates at a much smaller level and then becomes systemic. Listen, sin is the most systemic reality on this planet. Not systemic racism. Sin is the most systemic reality on this planet today. The sinful attitudes, biases, and prejudices we hold toward one another all have the same root cause and origin, sin in the heart of the individual. Jesus makes this clear in Mark chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And he was saying that which proceeds 
out of the man. That is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. There are any number of terms and labels our society uses to describe the prejudicial attitudes that you and I harbor towards one another. Not a day seems to go by that there isn't some new ism that we need to be aware of. But scripture teaches that there are only two attitudes you and I can have towards one another. Love or hate. That's it. That's it. The only question that remains is how you and I manifest those attitudes towards one another. Now, I say that on the basis of such texts as 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Conversely, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So again, scripture speaks in terms of only two attitudes. Love and hate. That's it. There are no isms in Scripture. You will not find them there. I am personally of the opinion that when it comes to matters of social justice and racial reconciliation, that the church has succeeded in complicating what the gospel makes very simple. So simple, in fact, that a child can understand it. We see that in Luke chapter 18, verse 16. That simple gospel is this each of us is a sinner. That's Romans 3.23. Our sinfulness is congenital. That's Romans 5.12. But by faith in Jesus Christ and in his atoning and redemptive work on the cross, sinners like you and me can be reconciled first and foremost to God and consequently to one another. That is the gospel simply stated. But when the childlike message of the gospel is integrated with worldly philosophies like liberation theology and critical race theory, it loses that simplicity. Consequently, the simple gospel becomes nothing more than an obscure sociological proposition that warrants an advanced academic degree to even begin to comprehend it. The absence of a proper biblical anthropology is why some professing Christians behave as if skin color is dynamic and not static. That kind of thinking is contrary to what scriptures, the scriptures declare about the innate depravity of the human heart. For example, Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says that the intent of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. 
And yet they regard melanin as having the inherent and autonomous capacity and ability to somehow cause a person to form sinful attitudes, prejudices, and biases about someone. That fallacy is why I'm so against the term racial reconciliation. Listen, races don't reconcile, hearts do. Melanin does not feel, melanin does not think, it does not love, it does not hate, it does not form intent or opinion, and it does not distinguish between good and evil. That's what I mean when I say melanin is static. It is not dynamic. The heart is dynamic. Melanin is static. It does not feel, it does not think, it does not love, it does not hate. Your skin color does not form intent or opinion. It does not distinguish between good and evil. Melanin does none of those things because it cannot do any of those things. But your heart can. The heart is capable of all of those attitudes. To argue otherwise is to deny what Jesus clearly declared in the passage I read earlier in Mark chapter 7, that the genesis of all disharmony and all disunity that exists in the world is a direct result of who we are on the inside, in our heart, not who we are on the outside. As believers, our collective failure to apply what is taught by Christ in Mark chapter 7 is what has given rise to a doctrine that I've turned sin by proxy. Sin by proxy is the idea that this current generation of white people should be regarded as collectively guilty of the historical sins allegedly perpetrated by their ancestors. Sins such as slavery and systemic racism solely on the basis of their ethnicity and consequently must collectively repent of and make restitution for those historical offenses. Now, notwithstanding that scripture clearly teaches that each of us individually will be held accountable to God for our sins. Sin by proxy promotes the unbiblical hermeneutic that sin and its penalty can be vicariously, retroactively, and arbitrarily transferred from one person to another. As the renowned economist and author Thomas Sowell writes in his book, The Vision of the Anointed, quote, Nothing is more of a search for cosmic justice than attempts to redress the wrongs of history, not simply for particular individuals wrongly convicted or victimized in some other way, but for whole categories of people whose ancestors' misfortunes are to be redressed in the present generation, unquote. Saul is talking about sin by proxy. It is this idea of sin by proxy that has fed and fostered embracing of such concepts as white guilt and white fragility within the church today. So much so that many white evangelicals have chosen to remain in the closet, so to speak, for fear of being labeled racist for saying anything that might even be remotely construed as going against the current social justice narrative, which is to portray all black people as oppressed and all white people as oppressors. 
In the New Testament, the words enmity and enemies are often used interchangeably. The prefix en denotes that which is within or innate. Words like energy, inner vigor, and enjoy, inner pleasure, come to mind. The same applies to you and me concerning this matter of enmity. It is something that is innate and endemic to each one of us. The acrimony that you and I harbor toward one another is a direct and tangible result of the enmity that resides in our hearts toward God. It is a reality that is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, where he says this, the mind set on the flesh is hostile, is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And yet, despite that truth, the gospel of racial reconciliation continues to be preached from the pulpits of many evangelical churches today. But nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is the term race used in the same context as it is consistently used by the culture. Our culture today defines race primarily in terms of skin color. It makes no distinction between race and the more biblically accurate term ethnicity. <clears throat> Depending on the level of melanin you possess, the culture determines your race to be either white if you have less melanin or black if you have more melanin. But even science has proven the concept of human races is rooted in a fallacy. As the late Dr. Robert Walt Sussman writes in his book, The Myth of Race, quote, what many people do not realize is that this racial structure is not based on reality. Anthropologists have shown for many years now that there is no biologically, biological reality to human race. There are no major complex behaviors that directly correlate with what might be considered human racial characteristics. There is no inherent relationship between intelligence, law abidingness, or economic practices and race. Just as there is no relationship between nose size, height, blood group, or skin color, and any set of complex human behaviors. However, over the past 500 years, we have been taught by an informal, mutually reinforcing consortium of intellectuals, politicians, statesmen, business and economic leaders, and their books, that human racial biology is real and that certain races are biologically better than others. These teachings have led to major injustices to Jews and non-Christians during the Spanish Inquisitions, to blacks, Native Americans, and others during colonial times, to African Americans during slavery and reconstruction, to Jews and other Europeans during the reign of the Nazis in Germany, and to groups from Latin America and the Middle East, among others, during modern political times. The biologically deterministic racial worldview has been tested and disproven consistently and yet its proponents have remained resistant to all empirical scientific evidence for more than 500 years, but especially during the past 100 years, unquote. 
As the title of Dr. Sussman's book suggests, human race is a myth. It is a myth both scientifically and bio biologically, and yet for centuries, society and to a great extent the church has unquestioningly bought into that myth. It is what Frederick Douglass described as, quote, scientific moonshine, unquote. The resulting damage has been well documented over the annals of both societal and ecclesiastical history, not only in America, but around the world. Man-centered efforts to reconcile people of different ethnicities is nothing new. And yet, invariably, they have proven futile at addressing the root cause of the enmity that exists between human beings, sin. By definition, reconciliation is a volitional act that occurs at the level of the human heart. Skin color plays no role whatsoever, none. Only the heart-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can remedy what separates us from God and from one another. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, how else can it be understood? How else can it be understood how something as innocuous as the color of a person's skin can be observed with the eyes, then processed in the mind, and formed as sinful attitudes in the heart? How else can you explain that? There is no other explanation other than that the problem is spiritual, not sociological. Society cannot hope to remedy with temporal solutions what is fundamentally a spiritual malady. The only solution is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, that is to repent and believe in the gospel. I wholly concur with Pastor John MacArthur who said this, quote, as Christians, we ought to have a moral and social influence in our communities. We ought to use the rights granted to us to promote morality and decency in the public arena. But that's not the sum total of our responsibility in this world. We can't settle for mere social change and behavior modification. We must bring the light of the truth to bear in a world blinded by sin. And we must do what we can to halt society's decay, not through protests and political action, but through the bold proclamation of the gospel, unquote. Jupiter Hammond, who lived his entire life as a slave, is now a free man, eternally free. But the truth is, Hammond was already a free man, even in the midst of his earthly enslavement. How could I possibly say that, you might ask? I'll tell you how. Because that spiritual freeing us is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Galatians 5.1 says it was freedom that Christ set us free. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to rest in the reality that the same God who spoke into existence, the heavens and the earth, is in complete control of everything that occurs in it. Now consider that against the backdrop of these words from the 12th century theologian and apologist, the 20th century the, uh, theologian and apologist Cornelius Van Til, who in his book, The Christian Apologetics, said this, quote, I feel that the whole of history and civilization 
would be unintelligible to me if it were not for my belief in God. So true is this that I propose to argue that unless God is back of everything, you cannot find meaning in anything. Unquote. Conversely, Dr. John Frame, in his book, The Doctrine of God, A Theology of Lordship, said this, quote, People freely choose to do evil, but for that, they are no less under God's control. Unquote. The long-held maxim, justice delayed is justice denied, couldn't be more inaccurate in terms of what Scripture teaches. As far as God is concerned, justice is neither delayed nor denied. God has promised that his holy, righteous, and impartial judgment will be consummated either in this life or the next. That's 1 Timothy 5.24. The God who reigns over everything that occurs in his creation, whether good or evil, Proverbs 15.3, will himself either in this life or in the life to come, ensure that his righteous judgment, his righteous justice is apportioned to all those to whom it is due. What evangelical social justicians must understand and accept is that scripture never promises that we will have relief from injustice in this sinful world. In fact, it teaches precisely the opposite. Jesus said in John 16, that in the world you will have tribulation. We talk a lot about the promises of God where there's a promise right there. You will have tribulation. That's a promise. In Ecclesiastes 5, 8, we are warned. If you see oppression of the poor, and denial of justice and righteousness in the province. Do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. The reality of those passages in John 16 and Ecclesiastes 5 bring to my mind this reality check from Thomas Sowell in his book, Discrimination and Disparities, where he says this, quote, the undeniable fact that life has never been remotely fair in the sense of presenting equal likelihoods of achieving economic prosperity or other benefits has led many people to conclude that human biases are the reason. There's no question that human biases have contributed to unfair prospects, but it is a complete non sequitur to say that human biases are the sole or even primary causes of unequal prospects without hard evidence to support that conclusion. That is not to say that nothing can be done to offer more people more opportunities. Much has already been done. But how it is done can be either helpful or harmful depending on how well we understand and deal with the world as it is, rather than according to some vision that might seem more attractive for whatever reason. Despite the inability to confiscate and redistribute human capital, nevertheless, human capital is, ironically, one of the few things that can be spread to others without those, with having, without those who haven't having any less remaining for themselves. 
But one of the biggest obstacles to this happening is the social justice vision in which the fundamental problem of the less fortunate is not an absence of sufficient human capital, but the presence of other people's malevolence. For some reason, for some rather, for some, abandoning that vision, abandoning that social justice vision, would mean abandoning a moral melodrama starring themselves as crusaders against the forces of evil, unquote. That is the definition of a social justice. A self-defined crusader against the forces of evil. It is naive to expect perfect justice in a world that is inherently imperfect. It is imperfect because of enmity, not ethnicity. Scripture is clear that the world in which we live rests in the power of the evil one. That's 1 John 5, 19. Only in the new heaven and the new earth will unadulterated and untainted justice and righteousness be a reality. And that reality will be eternal and unceasing. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come into the world to save society. The fallacy of racial reconciliation is that our need for reconciliation is rooted in the enmity that exists between us and God, not in any ethnic, social, cultural, or economic distinctions or differences that exist between us. In other words, it is who we are on the inside that is the problem, not who we are on the outside. Thank you.